1: Hello, welcome to the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich. On this episode, I will be speaking with Clay Vagrant on his historical fantasy novel, The Empire's Bladesman, Forbidden Relics, published by Armored History in 2021. It is a gripping story that is set during the Ming Dynasty that ruled over China. Clay Vagrant is an Asian American millennial who loves martial arts, military history, and the history of civilizations, and then reading and writing about them. He helps start uh, Armored History, dedicated to students and fans of the study of world military history and historical fantasy genres. Uh, Clay Vagrant, uh, welcome to the New Books Network. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. It's, uh, it's great to be here. Yeah, we usually like to begin our interviews by uh, asking our guests to tell us a little bit about yourself and how did you, what's kind of the backstory behind uh, writing this novel?
0: Yeah, sure. Uh, So my name is Clay. I'm an Asian American artist and author, Uh, currently trying to get my master's in history, which I should have gotten in 2020. But, you know, thanks to the pandemic and the complications it came with, uh, I'm only now getting back to doing my my thesis. So I'm an avid student of world history. I I love reading up on global interactions, especially during the the medieval era. Uh, I like focusing on the, the Asian continent in particular, reading about Chinese military history and civilization with a special focus on the ming dynasty so i do not yet speak chinese apart from several phrases and recognizing a few dozen characters but it's definitely there on my immediate uh, to do list yeah because it's important if you want to be able to read directly and accurately from primary sources so uh yeah because of my love for world history and uh, asian history in particular i Decided, you no, know, why not write a, a fiction book uh, set during that particular time period in that particular region and uh, see where it goes. And, you know, the, the fantasy, the fantasy uh, industry is booming right now with, you know, with Lord of the Rings and Game of Thrones coming back in the scene. So uh, I thought this this would be a, a really good project to uh, embark on.
1: Now, uh, could you roughly summarize, like, the plot of your novel without, of course, giving away spoilers? But can you just give us a rough summary of the plot?
0: Yeah, sure. So... <clears throat> the name of the series is uh, War of the Dragon Throne. It's a military historical fantasy and wuxia series uh, set during the Ming Dynasty. So it takes uh, actual historical backgrounds and contexts and uh, some historical figures and blends it together with fantasy elements we're familiar with from you know mainstream entertainment. So in the first novel, you follow uh, a main character named Shao Lien, who is a battle-hardened veteran and a high-ranking officer in the Jinyue, which is the Imperial Brocade Guards. Um, Their their purpose is like a secret service agency, uh, primarily with the task of protecting the emperor and his family and imperial interests. So you basically follow uh, Shaolian, who is assigned to the far western desert frontiers of the Ming Empire, and he's uh, assigned to take down a notorious and powerful leader of a large criminal syndicate. Uh, The syndicate was engaging in activities that's been deemed threatening to the dynasty and was thus condemned by the emperor himself to be destroyed by military force. And this is where the fantasy part comes in, because in the process of undertaking this campaign, Shao Lian and the men under his command discovered that the crime syndicate's activities had somehow awakened a powerful and ancient being from pre-human history, so this being is able to command hordes of what appear to be undead, flesh-eating humanoids. So I'm not gonna spoil what they are, but you'd have to, to read up on it. And, um, but with the help of a Venetian scholar named Liliana, the main characters pretty much unravel the secrets of prehistory, and they somehow find themselves waging a war of, of survival against this supernatural threat while still having to go on to destroy this powerful crime gang.
1: Yeah, it gets to get pretty in deep, but that's pretty yeah. much the gist of it. <laughs> no, no, no. You did very you, you you did it very well, and I must commend you. I, I read the novel and I was really gripped by the uh by the awesome. plot and so forth. That's great. That, yeah, appreciate it. Yeah. Now the as you mentioned, the uh the novel is set during the Ming Dynasty, uh, correct? Yes. Yes, uh, that is correct. Is there any reason uh in particular for your interest in this time period? You kind of touched on it oh, a little yeah. bit in your intro, oh, yeah, but can yeah. you can you expand on it? Uh yeah, for sure. Yeah, that, the uh, the Ming Dynasty was a, a great
0: time period and it's a, an awesome location for this kind of story because it comes with a lot of intrigues. Uh, this era is marked by a strong and powerful centralized government. Uh, the, the empire had relative social stability and the military engaged in quite a few interesting military conflicts. So it's one of ch- medieval China's most affluent and influential empires. Um, it's headed by an emperor who commands one of the largest armies in the world, at least on paper. Uh, He directs a vast and powerful imperial bureaucracy that's full of political intrigue, corruption, and internal factionalism. The Ming Dynasty was a world unto itself. It's dotted by locations with uh, thousands of years of history. So across its vast expanses are large cities and bustling towns and diverse landscapes inhabited by hundreds of millions of people and there are a lot of foreign delegations that would come to the the Ming empire shores trying to establish trade and diplomatic relations and and pay tribute to the emperor and uh, to sample a taste of of China's wealth during this time but at the same time within the borders of the Ming there's a lot of secret societies and guilds, village associations, uh, religious sects and temples and uh, all sorts of uh, other societies. So, the 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 Wusha inspired themes in my book is uh, that there are a lot of hostile factions trying to contend with the empire's power and challenge its sovereignty to, to defy the emperor. So, there are vigilantes and vagabonds who excel exceedingly in the martial arts and they they roam the land in search of contracts and an adventurous quests. So, my book series combines the elements of real world history with a bit of the Wuxia genre of martial arts fiction, and then uh, adding that with Western fantasy tradition. So it's basically an epic journey with enigmatic non-human characters and some weird creatures and such.
1: Yeah. Uh, could you explain a little bit more what the the Wuxia, the Wuxia uh, tradition uh, is for people who might not be as familiar with that?
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my book was uh, <clears throat> heavily inspired by, by Wuxia films and a bit of the Wuxia literature. I mean, I, I grew up watching a lot of those martial arts movies uh, with the Shaolin monks and the wudong priests and such. And uh, so the, the wuxia is mostly about the heroes, the, the, the martial arts hero, uh, who's basically sort of like a Robin Hood character uh, going around helping people, fighting corruption, fighting crime, and there's a lot of some of them have like special metaphysical or supernatural powers and help them get really fast or very strong in their fighting style. And uh, so they're, they're, they're I guess they're the the ancient Chinese version of the the vigilante hero, sort of like you know how Batman is to, to Gotham City. So yeah, so yeah, I mean, uh, my books were definitely inspired a lot by by Wu Xia and uh, those old classic films from like the '70s and the '80s <laughs> that I that I like to uh, to watch growing up.
1: Now, uh, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon would be an example of
0: this. Oh, yeah, definitely. Show. Yeah, yes. Yeah, they're, they're able to kind of jump really high and fly around.
1: <laughs> now, uh, what kind of historical research did you have to do for this novel? Like, what did you have to look oh, yeah. into?
0: Yeah, I mean, I spent quite a bit of time um, researching on the structure and organization of the main government, which is quite in-depth and, and complex. The the imperial bureaucracy is huge and even with the emperor's court and the imperial palace, there are like thousands of personnel in attendance. So I read up and took a whole bunch of notes on, uh, from the works of scholars like Charles O'Hucker and uh, Edward Dreyer. Uh, I got his, uh, his book, The Dictionary of Official Titles in Ancient China, which gives you a basic overview of government structures from each dynasty and uh, all the primary offices and roles that officials had throughout imperial history of China. Uh, I even got his books on Ming government and its institutions. I even got a copy of uh, the Dictionary of the Ming Biography, which has quite a bit of uh, info on select individuals uh, during the Ming Dynasty. There, this, it has the names of different military officers, some key bureaucrats and officials, and even foreign leaders who have engaged with the Ming in some way. So aside from those, I, I read up quite a bit on actual Ming history from its very foundations to its consolidation. Uh, particularly from the late Professor Edward Dreyer. Uh, ultimately, this stuff is just really fascinating. It's it's so great to see how complex and developed and even how bloated these imperial governments were. It's, it's mind-blowing. And, and, and to see how they dealt with corruption and inefficiencies and weaknesses from within the government and still somehow make use of the best attributes of their system. It always invokes a sense of admiration for me. Uh, and to think that this is all before electric communication, there was no phones, telegrams, or radios, and they were still able to make it work for you know at least a couple hundred years at a time. So so yeah, it, it's it's been, it's been quite a joyride reading up on uh, on on uh, Ming history and Ming government.
1: Oh, I bet. Now, one particular institution that you quickly mentioned earlier was the uh, Jin Way. Is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yeah, the uh, Jin which is the uh, Imperial
0: Brocade Guards. Yeah,
1: um, yeah, and this plays an important role in the oh, yeah. novel. And you mentioned that they were kind of like the the Ming uh, secret police, something like yes, that. Yes, yeah, uh,
0: imperial assassins, like uh, secret service. So, I wrote a brief introduction um, about the Jin Way at the beginning of my book. Actually, I can just read straight from it. So. In in order to protect the emperor and conduct internal government surveillance uh, and eliminate political enemies within various cliques and factions and remove threats to the emperor, the the Jinue were the brocade guards. They they were employed to act as the emperor's assassins and secret police. Uh, They were originally purposed to be the emperor's elite bodyguards and the organization grew exponentially in number and in the application of their roles. So like I mentioned earlier, they were, they were supposed to protect the emperor and his family and imperial interests. But later on, their roles became more expanded to involve military intelligence and activities would usually associate with modern intelligence agencies like the CIA, for example. So their commanders answered directly to the emperor himself and uh, they needed no due process and they wielded tremendous power to arrest and torture and execute anyone they judged to be a threat. To the Emperor and the Empire so they often collaborated with spy agencies uh, like the Eastern Depot and later the Western Depot so as a result their their power and their uh, their notoriety became greatly feared across uh, the Empire their reputation was most especially infamous amongst the high-ranking civil officials who would never dare to arouse suspicions for fear of the tortures they'd employ to produce false confessions so, the Genoese officers were were known for you know their lethal combat skills, at least in Wuxia literature, right? And they have they wear colorful uniforms called flying fish robes. So it had an, uh, an a colorful embroidered dragon with four claws, and it'd be so many colors and swirling clouds and all kinds of patterns and designs. So uh, yeah, and those those kinds of uniforms were worn only by by court personnel or people with uh, with access to the imperial palace.
1: Now, who generally were members of uh, this organization and how were they recruited? And I ask because early on in the novel, the main character has to kind of recount his service history to his superior. And his superior makes this offhand comment that he was recruited rather in an unusual manner. So what was the usual, like, who were the members and how were they usually recruited?
0: Yeah, so the recruitment process for the main army overall is kind of sketchy. It's kind of there's no exact way. Uh, especially in the later half. I mean, ordinarily, uh, at least during the the beginning of the dynasty, military service was hereditary. There were military families who produced sons, who go on to serve in the army. Uh, But there were other ways they recruited soldiers. Um, There was even a point where they started incorporating mercenaries and rogues into the army ranks, especially when military uh, quality was starting to deteriorate. Uh, but generally, what they had was the, the Wei Suo system, where there'd be a guard of about 5,600 men um, who would report directly to a provincial pro- provincial official under the wing of the Ministry of War. So there'd be hundreds of those guard units made up of 5,600 men uh, scattered strategically throughout the empire. So in my book, uh, Lien joined the Imperial Brocade Guard, like straight out of the army, which did happen. But in general, how the GUNA were recruited, I'm sure there were many different avenues. Uh, military service was one of them. But I'm not so certain as to the exact procedure of employing more guards and officers and other personnel uh, within the agency. I mean, a lot of what we know about this, um, primary sources are really, really scarce. Um, you'd have government officials and eunuchs burning a lot of records and such uh, through, throughout the duration of the dynasty. So a lot of things did get lost because of internal factionalism and and corruption. Um, But uh, ultimately, it was the the eunuchs, the the powerful eunuchs, who became directors of these institutions, like the Ginue and the Eastern Depot, these spy agencies. So they would often use their positions to advance their own agenda apart from the will of the emperor alone. So this influence would extend uh, to how they'd recruit more officers into the guard. And uh, and because of that, their numbers really swelled, and even the application of their roles became even more and more diverse. So their power just just grew and grew under the director the the, the direction of these uh, these eunuchs
1: now uh early in the novel the existence of secret fight clubs is mentioned and you kind of mentioned that earlier in like what fascinates <laughs> you about the ming dynasty uh what do we know do the do, what do we know about these types of uh clubs, yeah, I mean, fight clubs
0: yes there, there were i mean i don't have any primary sources like to to cite from the top of my head right now but um illegal and illicit activities are endemic in every human society and even in ming china such a such a huge and, and developed society there was no exception. A lot of uh, illegal activity and uh, and crime sy- uh, syndicates were around, and this would probably, you know, this would involve the fight clubs and and, and martial arts tournaments. Um, so, but these martial arts tournaments and underground fighting, as it were, is more of the wuxia element in my book, and my main character likes to engage in, in these uh, sort of activities as just for fun. Um, he would go in this, in disguise and uh, go and explore these underground fight clubs because, well, he's always so good at them and he's always winning them. <laughs> so in my book, uh, his commanding officer pretty much doesn't, you know, you got to stop doing this. It's kind of illegal. And the emperor started to crack down on this stuff. So you better stop doing it. <laughs> you know, like how long did you think your little nighttime escapades would go unnoticed?
1: <laughs> yeah, when I first read that, that kind of made me uh, think of like the yellow turb or the red turbans, but that's more of like, the rebellion, yes preceding the yeah. Ming or even the Boxers, but that's like towards the real end of. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those were like
0: those were like a rebel organizations. They were they were uh, rebel movements, sort of like the rebels in Star Wars trying to go up against the Empire. Yeah, I, I guess in a sense it is that. It, and it then I think similar.
1: also didn't the triads kind of originate during the Ming Dynasty?
0: I, be, yeah, I believe the the predecessors of the uh, the triad. A criminal group would probably have their roots in the Ming and Qing era because uh, these criminal organizations pretty much did have their roots in uh, rebellious movements, especially to defy the government. So ultimately, I mean that that's what they are. They're they're a rogue state. They, you know, they they're defying the law. They're defying the government to do what they do. So uh, these rebel movements would expand their activities to you know things like drug trafficking and arms smuggling and such. So so yeah, rebel rebel movements pretty much do evolve into uh, criminal organizations.
1: Now, uh, what was like a common punishment for people who were in these organizations if they were caught by the the Jinny or any of the other uh, officials of the of the Ming dynasty? Do we know? Yeah,
0: yeah, but, yeah. Punishments in general in pre modern times were were really brutal, and this was especially the case in in the Ming. I mean, the Ming had a huge population, and that need they needed to make sure that all of the citizens behaved. Uh, bandits and criminals would usually stand before a magistrate, a high-level magistrate, to be sentenced for, for punishment. So there was no jury or trial in, in the modern sense. The The magistrate uh, held their fates in his hands. And some of these punishments were, were well-known. Um, for example, like the placing of kangs or heavy wooden collar, uh, collars on, on the prisoners. You'd have this huge, heavy wooden block uh, placed around your shoulders and your neck. It's very uncomfortable. They even had things like public beatings where you'd get whipped by rods or canes of wood or or bamboo. Uh, that'll that'll leave wicked scars in your on your back and on your legs. Uh, but I think the the worst one for for the biggest offenders ex- experiencing uh, punishment would be Ling Chi, which is like a, a death by a thousand cuts. So what happens is you'd pretty much get sliced, you'd get sliced like ham, piece by piece while you're still alive. And all your vital organs would still be functional uh, but you'd be in extreme agony during the entire process so your skin and flesh would be literally carved out of you until you die <laughs> so it's extremely gruesome as most punishments were in the middle ages anyway but but ling chi is what really stands out stands out to me because i can't i can't imagine what that, what that would feel like
1: yeah, and I think that's even the origin of that term, like death by a thousand cuts. That's where we get it from.
0: Yeah, I, I, I think that is
1: where it would come from. Yeah, yeah, it, it's 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 gruesome. I can't even think about it. <laughs> yeah well, we'll move on then. But uh, Mm -hmm. yeah, uh, also was mentioned, and you also mentioned this earlier when describing the plot, that the main character has to go to the frontier regions to battle these uh, bandits. And it seems to imply that they're kind of maybe even nomads. Uh, Was this historically the case with the the Ming uh, having to battle these bandits in the frontier regions? And Mm -hmm. I know they had to battle, contend with the nomads. In fact, they rebuilt the, the Great Wall of China to help do that. Is that correct?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, banditry was actually a pretty big problem uh, even during the Ming era, which is it's quite surprising uh, considering how big and all-encompassing the government was. I mean, they're supposed to have absolute control and surveillance over the whole empire, but I was surprised to learn that it was actually a pretty big issue for quite a while. A lot of these bandit gangs would stock roads and trade routes to rob people, uh, even high-ranking officials as they were traveling uh, in between towns and cities. So they weren't exclusive to the frontier regions. Uh, they were actually everywhere at some point. And they even became so bold as to start conducting their thievery within the vicinity of the capital of Beijing, which is the most heavily guarded and militarily fortified city in the Ming. So the problem was uh, a lot of bandits came from within the ranks of the army itself, the lowest quality soldiers and and scumbags would use their positions to conduct banditry as outlaws and and highwaymen. So it didn't help that for most of the dynasty, military status was held in low regard. Um, You were considered of low social class and probably uneducated if you were some random foot soldier within the army. So you can imagine how low the morale was for most of that time. during the middle of the Ming, uh, the Ming dynasty, there was a uh, civil official, uh, a grand coordinator, and a Confucian scholar named uh, Wang Yangming, who took on this problem and ended up arresting and killing thousands of bandits and their their ringleaders uh, through the use of military power. So interestingly, he wasn't a military official, but his position allowed him to have military command for Specific circumstances, such as fighting bandits or curbing pirates along the coast. Now, with the with the nomads, uh, China has always had a problem with raiders from the steppes, or from the north, and even even to the west. Uh, they're surrounded by by horse warriors and nomadic tribes, uh, particularly the Mongols and the various Khans uh, in history. And um, before that, you had the Jurchens and the Khitans, etc. So, China's frontier settlements and towns were they were always at risk of being attacked and destroyed or looted and pillaged. Um, but the Ming would often conduct counterattacks or military operations against them with varying degrees of effect. Uh, but they've always maintained very volatile relations with their nomadic neighbors. Um, but in fact, they they play a really important role in my story, especially with the uh, eastern uh, Chagatai Khanate and uh, northern Yuan Mongols. So, yeah, it's... A, it, it's really exciting to get them involved in the story as well.
1: Yeah, yeah. And I, and I remember, I think, even the low morale of like the border troops uh, was what helped kind of cause the collapse of the Ming because the Manchus were able to kind of remove oh, yeah. some of the frontier soldiers to their oh, side. Oh, yeah.
0: Yeah, the, the Ming dynasty toward its end was plagued with a lot of problems. There was a lot of famines and droughts and earthquakes, and, and uh, they were dealing with a huge peasant revolt. So not to mention that the quality of the army was really in decline. So they were up against a superior military force, uh, you know, in the form of the Manchus. So you can imagine they just pretty much just let them in to call the rebellion. And then the Manchus decided to never leave (laughs) and to control the control of of, of the country. Every great dynasty has to come to an end. And usually it's in the form of these uh, these uh, calamities and these revolutions.
1: Well, they did leave, but it was like 300 years later. Yeah.
0: yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty, pretty <laughs> They much. overstayed their welcome. <laughs> yeah, I guess I guess you can say that, yeah. But they yeah. did influence the country quite a bit.
1: Yeah. Now, let's move from uh, the historical to more of the fantasy elements. Did you borrow yeah. any elements from like traditional uh, Chinese mythology and folklore uh, for this novel? I did, but, but just a little bit.
0: There are references to uh, a specific powerful mythological creature uh, in my book and that's a part of the fantasy aspect the characters in my book best describe this particular creature uh as one being from chinese mythology because that's pretty much what it looks like but i don't want to spoil too much but as uh as far as traditional chinese mythological creatures and characters go not so much my book places a lot more emphasis on traditional philosophical values uh, which include confucian thought and But it's more heavily inspired by the teachings of Wotsi and ancient Chinese heaven worship and the concept of the will of heaven, uh, which Wotsi's teachings was heavily based on. Uh, Wotsi is one of my favorite Chinese philosophers from the pre-imperial era. And and I'm quite fond of most of his philosophies on life and warfare, for instance. Uh, My book uh, also draws uh, heavily from a unique interpretation of Taoism or Taoist philosophy which many philosophers like to talk about, including Motsu. So, uh, because one of my main characters uh, is a sage-like hermit who has a special type of clair- clairvoyance and wisdom, and a lot of his teachings and perspectives uh, were heavily influenced by Motsu. So uh, he's like the conscience and spiritual healer of the other main characters who do their fighting with swords, spears, arrows, and, and cannons, basically. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I know uh, Confucianism and Taoism get uh, all the attention, but there were a lot of different schools of Chinese philosophy.
0: Yeah, there are definitely quite a few, and they're, they're worth they're worth checking out. It's very very interesting about thought provoking.
1: Probably the only other one that's a little more infamous is Legalism, but that kind of mostly is around the 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 uh, the first Chinese uh, emperor Shu yeah. Wan Di because he was influenced by that.
0: Yes, yes, uh, the first dynasty was uh, definitely more legalistic, and uh, yeah, it was it was also uh, known to be a brutal regime. But it it did have some of its merits. It it was effective in some sense.
1: (laughs) Yeah, well, he he gave us the terracotta army, uh, which is still like a major monument to ancient China.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, I I guess he's usually depicted as more of a paranoid and tyrannical type of ruler. But I I think he he had a a few more merits than that.
1: Well, history is always uh, complex, as they say. Now, uh, uh, getting to the uh, philosophy uh, in the novel, you mentioned that your main character has the five books, the four classics, along with a collection of histories in his personal libraries. Now, are these actual real Chinese uh, texts, and what were they usually about?
0: Oh yeah, yeah, they're, they're definitely re- they're definitely real. Um, the the four books is basically a sort of a primer for Confucian philosophy and, and teaching. So. You have there the Analects of Confucius, which is like a collection of his sayings and Proverbs. And then you have the Doctrine of the Mean, which teaches you about the Tao or the Way and and teaches you about the path uh, towards virtue and righteousness, uh, for instance. And then third, you have the book called The Great Learning, which talks about uh, Chinese philosophical ideas regarding politics and political thoughts. And then finally, you have the Mencius, which is named after the Confucian disciple, um, this particular book has a long collection of drawn out conversations, uh, between Mencius and a few political figures like, like Kings. So, so yeah, these four books, uh, provided sort of the core curriculum for students and aspiring scholars, uh, looking for government careers during the Ming and Qing dyn- dynasties. Uh, these students would take local provincial and Imperial level examinations. That are mostly centered around these four main texts now the the five classics are like the accompanying books to the four books and they're also a part of the Confucian curriculum sponsored by the imperial government so you would have the book of poetry which is a collection of hymns and songs and poems for spiritual practices like ancestral veneration then you have the book of documents a collection of writings from the Zhou dynasty and then you have the Ching or the book of changes which is basically a book on Chinese divination practices. And after that, you'd have the Annals of Spring and Autumn, which is it's basically a record of uh, Confucius's home state, which is the state of blue. And then there is the Book of Rites, which discusses uh, specific ceremonies and rituals and practices for government and court purposes. Confucius was, was big on uh, ceremonies and rites and, 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 and uh, practices. So, so basically these are the, the main books that uh, students would pretty much center their studies on uh, to prepare for examination system and hopefully get a career within the government.
1: Oh, so uh, you mentioned earlier some of the books you read for your research. Now, for any of the of your readers who read your novel, but they want to get interested in more of the history, like the historical context of the Ming, maybe get a better understanding of the novel, uh, what would you recommend to them?
0: Yeah, I'd recommend Professor Drive's book on early Ming China um, to really uh, get an in-depth look on how the dynasty was founded and how it was ruled in the beginning, how it set the stage for Uh, one of China's most powerful dynasties. Um, Secondly, I'd say get scholarly books on the voyages of uh, Zheng He. If you can read on the voyages of Zheng He in depth and on the Ming dynasty's foreign relations, then you can begin to understand Chinese foreign policy, especially at that time. You can see how they viewed the world, how they interacted with their neighbors, how they influenced different countries politically, economically, and culturally. And what pretty much expanded Uh, to be a Chinese-centered Asian world order for the next few hundred years, at least, until they were challenged by the industrialized West uh, in the early 19th century. So, in fact, studying the Ming Dynasty can help students and scholars have a better understanding of Chinese political thought and political culture, which had such a profound effect on world history.
1: Well, this has been a very interesting uh, discussion. Uh, do you have any other uh, thoughts to share? Maybe something we haven't touched on so far in this discussion.
0: Well, I, I'd, uh, I I'd pretty much just encourage our listeners to uh, go check out my book uh, if they're into more serious fantasy books. I mean, I, I hope this, uh, I hope this conversation uh, piqued to the interest of some of our readers to want to uh, study more history, especially Asian history, in, in an entertaining way. So. And again, if you if you really enjoy the book, I'd highly encourage the reader to leave a review because those are so crucial for, uh, to a book success. Uh, they go a long way in uh, helping authors and encouraging them because uh, book writing is pretty exhausting and it sometimes gets pretty lonely. So leaving an encouraging review is, is worth a lot more than you know. Uh, so if you get my book, just uh, take your time at your earliest convenience to uh, go ahead and leave a review. <laughs>
1: Well, we usually like to end our, uh, interviews by asking our guests, what are you working on now? I'm
0: actually beginning the fourth book in the series, which is probably going to be the longest and the last installment. Uh, I'm still in, I'm still doing quite a bit of research for that because it's going to be pretty, it's going to be pretty thick. It's going to be, uh, pretty complex, but, uh, I'm excited. I'm looking forward to finishing it, hopefully releasing it at the end of, uh, winter, uh, uh, this year so maybe maybe the first quarter of 2023 uh on top of that i'm preparing a new proposal for my thesis which is more centered on pre-colonial philippine history so right now i'm trying to see what sources are available and how i can uh, acquire them and get a hold of them so uh so right now my my immediate to-do list is just marketing the book marketing the series getting the word out it's it's, it's a lot of work trying to build an audience on social media and on the internet but it's also really fun and can be quite rewarding.
1: Well, uh, when you finish some of those projects, I mean, we'd love to have you back on to the podcast. Well, definitely. Yeah,
0: I enjoyed uh, having this talk and it's it's great to be part of a podcast.
1: Uh, Clay Vagrant, thank you for joining us on the uh, New Books uh, New Books Network. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's a pleasure. Thank you for listening to this episode of the New Books Network. I am your host, Stephen Sakevich, and until next time.